Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Asmahan Razavi, and I'm joined by Darren Krauss and Jeremy Zhao. We want to begin with a land acknowledgement in the spirit of reconciliation, acknowledging that we live, work, and record this podcast on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Kainai, and the Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. We also want to give a quick thank you to our sponsors. The first one is Calgary-based startup Eat for Later. Check them out at eatforlater.com. And the Gateway Association Calgary and their new EDI, our Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Employment Hub. Uh, Check them out at gatewaytodiversity.ca. So we have a jam-packed episode for you today, including a number of hot takes. I actually have two. And then we're going to go into behavior on council, looking at two incidents that have uh, creeped up over the last little bit. And then we're going to talk about the city's response to COVID-19 and this whole uh, province versus city narrative that might be starting to take place. Is it starting to take place? We will delve into that a little bit. Let's get started. And I think I'm just going to say that I'm going first with the hot takes today. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a really nice one and then a really terrible one. So my first one is I want everyone to know that we are in the midst of hot chocolate festival in YYC. You can download the YYC hot chocolate festival app, go find all the, like, I think there are like over a hundred hot chocolates all across the city. Take as many as you can support local businesses and ingest lots and lots of sugar. I saw that um, Mayor Gondek and Councillors Kara and Walcott enjoyed a few. Check it out. There's like a hot chocolate for everyone. And I think we all need a little bit of sugar and positivity in our lives because uh, roll into hot take number two. It has been a really hard time. To be Canadian, frankly, I think, you know, watching the uh, the convoy over the last three weeks, looking at the kind of anger and hatred and everything that's come up has really been, I know it's been really difficult for me. I've had to like put my phone away and, and tune out of social media for a little bit. And there are a lot of hard questions that I think we have, uh, or I have at least, um, including like we saw in Ottawa, um, a city having to deal with an occupation essentially for the last three weeks and the sort of inability of the police force to respond. I know that the, um, you know, their uh, chief of police just resigned. It's just been, been a mess. And I, I do want to like, just kind of touch on two points that um, are really kind of on my mind. And the first is that it is really hard as a person of color to watch this, knowing how different the response would have been if these protests were primarily members of the Black, Indigenous, or other, you know, person of color community. And, you know, I was saying this to Jeremy earlier, but it is like difficult for for me on the level that I immigrated to Canada right after or right before actually 9-11. And I remember how much like members of my community were regarded as a threat and even like going to a mosque 
to worship was almost like a radical action or, or could be seen as such. And so to see the kinds of things that are taking place and the way that people are like getting hugs from the police and stuff is just, it's a bit galling, frankly. And it's also on the other side galling because you know, I've been a part of like protests and stuff for a while. And there's so many protest movements across this country for different good causes. And yet somehow it seems like a group of frankly, mostly angry white men have gotten together and thrown a tantrum. And all of a sudden, um, so many governments are caving into the demands of what is really a very small percentage of Canadians. So that is like, tough to see. And then I think there's a broader problem, which is that you know, COVID-19 has frayed our social bonds. There is so much anger. There is so much hurt that people are dealing with. I really worry about what this means for our democracy. And so I worry about our democracy and sip on a hot chocolate and, and just hope that things get better. Let, let me go back to the hot chocolate thing there for a second. Aaron said that there were a lot of good ones. There are. So I've had like five now and they're quite good, you know, depending on what your, your, what your taste is. I, like I said earlier, there's something for everyone. And I went to um, a coffee shop that just opened recently, uh, maybe over a year. And they were so excited to like share the hot chocolate. And they were like, make sure you go online and rate it. So it's like, it's like <laughs> a really wholesome way that we can all support local businesses and do something nice. On your bad hot take, though, I actually uh, listened to an interesting segment by Rob Breckenridge on, gosh, I don't know what to call it, QR77? Is, is that still okay if I call it that? 770. And there was a conversation about the whole convoy situation. And do they take credit for these masks, the, the mask situation in, in Calgary, let's say, or or the fact that restrictions exemption program in our province is now being taken up? Do the Coots border people take credit for that? And furthermore, are we at the point now where Canadians are so frustrated with the, the Ottawa situation and what it's doing and the impacts that it's having that this actually really negatively impacts their cause, maybe more so than, than it did before? And with the conservative connection to it, in some ways, uh, is this paving the way for Justin Trudeau when the next election comes around? I feel like, you know, we will see, but I am very, very nervous about this sort of organized anger. And we've seen it take place in different parts of the world um, and the sort of corrosive effect that it's had on politics, whether or not it paves the way for Trudeau or whether this makes the conservatives and, you know, the current like front runner uh, for their leadership race, uh, Pierre Polyev, who has been supportive of these convoys, toxic. That's like one thing, but there's still this like small radicalized element of society that seems to be like, it's literally held our capital city hostage for three weeks. That part I think is what we really need to address and figure out how to reintegrate these folks into the sort of discourse that that is more productive and, and is not coming from this place of of anger and and fear almost. By the way, Jeremy Zhao has also joined us on this show. I'm just, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm listening. He's in my. 
uh, you know what? These are such difficult topics sometimes for me to talk about. And it, it brings me to my, I guess, hot take. It isn't really a hot take. And, and Darren, I want to really thank you for kind of writing this piece on kind of this art project called Reflective Urbanisms, which was uh, basically an art project just looking at the history of Chinatown as you two were just talking about this discourse that's happening, the fraying of social bonds it really made me reflect on some of the pieces that were in reflective urbanisms and what this art student has put together, which is the history, oftentimes a very tragic history of Calgary's Chinatown. So here we have a whole bunch of people there protesting about freedoms and what have you not. This art project kind of shows like before and after pictures of buildings that were destroyed or, or taken away from, you know, the Chinese population at the time. And, and one of those would be the Harry Hayes building, the federal building now that is on this giant parcel of land that used to house, you know, hundreds of uh, Chinese individuals, and it was appropriated away from them. And you can see pictures of all the houses being destroyed. And there's this new Harry Hayes building that just pops right up and all that history is gone. And the Chinese population, you know, went through a lot. The, the current location of Chinatown isn't where it used to be. They've been forced out of many different places. There's been lots of, you know, racism in the past. And it makes me go, you know, like a lot of my ancestors, a lot of people who are much, probably much more stronger than I am in terms of character and how they built their character and how they built their livelihoods suffered a lot. And if they were to go out and protest, they would have just been shut down immediately. And I reflect on that very deeply when I look at the protests now and going, they can basically do whatever they want and can have very little, little repercussion to their actions. Yet my ancestors or, or the people, you know, previous families, previous Chinese families didn't have that luxury and fought very hard and you can see that being reflected in this art piece. That was really moving, Jeremy. Thank you for sharing that. Speaking of art, and it seems like our, our hot takes, and this is by sheer coincidence, kind of go together. Uh, speaking of art and, and culture and history, today I was at an announcement, the Shaw family in, in memory of the late J.R. Shaw, made a $35 million donation to the Glenbow Reimagined, which is a fundraising campaign to, to fund the, the renovations. Uh, I, I, their goal is $175 million now uh, because of this donation. But, but the big announcement out of it was, was the $25 million. And that $25 million is going towards free admission forever for people who enter the renovated Glenbow Museum. On the surface, it's great in just the announcement that there is, you know, free admission and it, and it breaks down barriers. And from political sort of do-gooders respect, you know, breaking down barriers, I, I, th I think that's a really important one. It, it opens up accessibility for, for everybody. My hot take is, is a little bit more towards how important it is for decisions like this to be made in order to secure the future stability of the downtown. And why I say that is I can actually count, well, on one finger, the amount of times I've been to the Glenbow Museum in the past 10 years, maybe even 15 years, and that includes media appearances as well. And 
it's it's never been specifically about the money, but if you're having to pay an entry fee to get in, maybe it's it's not going to be exactly where you spend your entertainment dollars. So what this does is it opens up the accessibility, but with that free option of coming in and using this newly renovated facility, there are going to be thousands of people who come down to the Glenbow Museum or the, the J.R. Shaw Center for Arts and Culture, which the, the building will now be named. There's going to be a lot of people who come down into the area. And that is a pillar of Calgary's downtown revitalization strategy, which is to bring people downtown to make it a place that is vibrant, that is alive, that that really has a different feel to it than that nine to five workday audience uh, that, that it typically caters to. So I think that beyond the accessibility aspect, these small announcements that the city will make, the province will make, the feds will make, that bring more people into the downtown really provide a solid foundation for the success of Calgary's downtown revitalization. talk about behavior uh, in council and around council, looking at two instances. Um, the first is around Councillor Kara, who I believe around a month ago uh, tweeted saying that, you know, he regrets clearly calling out colleagues for signing their names onto a mo- notice of motion next to Sean Chu. He said, I think actively politing, politicking with him, him being Sean Chu, is not cool. And then he issued an apology saying that it's, I think it's really critical that we are clear with each other. It's questionable at any time on social media to play with and feed the trolls. And I should obviously never do that. It amplified these the idea that these counselors are not fit to serve and that they're sympathetic to child molestation. I want to be clear that that was never my intention. I was not thoughtful or helpful in weighing in in that way. And I deeply apologize to all four members of council for attaching them to those ideas. I in no way believe they are unfit to serve. I in no way believe that you stand for any of these terrible things. Mayor Gondak said that she appreciated that apology. We also saw that um, the mayor's now former chief of staff, Stephen Carter, left his role and I guess sort of um, embedded in his leaving, there were allegations of bullying. What, What do you all, I mean, this is sort of like we thought that this council was going to be a happy, positive place. And now we're hearing these things. What do you all think? Maybe I'll jump in right away here. I just, when I look at it now compared to maybe other more other city councils that are definitely sleepier, it does seem like they really, you know, whether they disagree with each other on, on certain ideological issues or, or what have you not, I think council needs to deeply reflect on kind of their professional attitude and the respect they give to each counselor or to their colleagues, because it is very distracting, right? Like when you look at the uh, stereotypical, I guess, you know, news article or coverage of Alberta, it's always something's wrong. I don't think city council wants to travel or, or end up in that position where every day the news is about an apology or somebody's yelling at somebody or somebody is throwing a tantrum about something like this is very 
very disappointing to see yet again we've been through it before with previous councils not being able to work together and distracting uh from the work that they need to do and you know, obviously covid doesn't help but it just seems like it, it, they haven't learned at all new counselors are kind of being thrown into the fire uh rightfully or wrongfully so also into this mix of he said she said like there's just no almost no decorum right now in terms of how they act and how they can res- be respectful of each other. Jeremy, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and to a large extent, I agree with you. My concern is, though, we're going down a slippery slope here. The tweet in my mind and you know what? Hit me at me on, on, on Twitter, whatever, if you disagree. The tweet that Giancarlo said Well, let's put it this way. It's not the worst one he's ever sent. It wasn't that bad. And that's why in his apology, the first thing he said was, I probably should have talked to my council colleagues before that. So it's not as though he doesn't believe in his tweet. I think what he apologized for more than anything was the the fact that he was spurring on what he referred to as these these trollish comments and that trollish aspect to social media but to kind of pair the two situations together john carlo carrara said he had had talked with the ethics advisor about this and on their recommendation decided to issue an apology and if you look back at the carter accusations One of them was over a tweet in relation to Sean Chu that that Andre Chabot took offense to. And and Andre actually even told me, you know what, I didn't actually think it was really that bad, but my colleagues told me that I should say something about it because if you allow it to happen, then it's going to continue happening. Also, the, the, the one involving Sean Chu was essentially the mayor's office directed Stephen Carter to go to Sean Chu and say, Sean, you are not going to be sworn in by the mayor. And that's why the ethics complaint. I mean, I don't know. Knowing Stephen Carter, I know that it maybe wasn't exactly. Hi, Sean. The mayor said that she will not be swearing you in. Um, have a very nice day. It probably was not like that. I think the one with Sonia Sharp is probably a little bit more serious. But still, I mean, we're talking about this tweet by Giancarlo Carra. We're talking about this Andre Chabot situation where Stephen Carter made a comment about about the way Chabot voted in relation to a Sean Chu matter. And then the Sean Chu situation, like I said from the start, this is a slippery slope. Every time a counselor feels like their feelings are going to be hurt, it, when when somebody provides you know, one, when somebody's doing their job, when two, somebody provides, which I think is fair comment, maybe it shouldn't have come from the chief of staff, but it was fair comment. Every time somebody says something that they don't like, are you going to go to the ethics advisor? Are you going to go to the ethics advisor and whine about every little thing that people say? Like, honestly, I feel like this is the Twitter equivalent of blocking people who say something that you don't like. And I think that there's a real problem with that. And if they continue to stifle it, I think you're going to end up with more explosions because people feel as though their ability to articulate themselves, especially when they disagree with other counselors, is being stifled. And I think that 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 is a real problem. 
I, I don't think there's anything wrong with disagreeing or, or having a, a, an opinion. I just think it's when you talk about other people and they're not in the room to be able to defend themselves, that's maybe what I have a problem with. I think maybe if he were to characterize his feelings, you know, I, I understand there are certain views against Sean Chu and, and his uh, behavior, but maybe he could have characterized it and said, Hey, you know, I wouldn't have done this. I can't speak for other individuals, but I wouldn't have, you know, been part of a, a emotions that, that have Sean Chu's name attached to it. I guess because it's also Twitter's fear, it's like I can attack anybody and I, I don't if I don't know them personally or if I if I don't really care for their feelings, I guess I could do it that way. But I feel like if you are actually interacting with colleagues, you know, on a professional level, in person, in a room, you like you can see them, you can you can hear them. If they're not in the room to defend themselves, I feel like it's a little bit underhanded. <laughs> sorry this like went in a direction i wasn't necessarily expecting that's good <laughs> which is good yeah i'm just thinking about like my own my own thoughts around this there are so many things going on here and what i get concerned about is a i mean i think that we've had like a reckoning around like acceptable behavior in workplaces in so many different workplaces and in so in so many ways politics has been like immune to this because you know, there is no such thing as like HR for staffers, you know, how do you, what, how do you deal with like the behavior of like elected officials? I mean, Trudeau got into hot water the other day for saying to a conservative Jewish MP that, you know, uh, con- like people who were supporting the convoy were like standing with swastikas or I don't know, something like that. And he got into like hot water for it. So um, it is this profession that like lends itself to saying things that, can get you into trouble. And then we're like, like I said, like we're, we're trying to like figure out what are acceptable, what's acceptable and what isn't. But I think that there is a real concern around, are we, and I, when we were chatting about the show before, um, before we recorded, I, I brought up like my frustrations with the Me Too movement, which I think was an extremely important reckoning that we needed to have to bring forward things around, you know, around sexual assault was that what ended up happening is that rather than like actually having this sort of systemic societal shifts that we needed to truly deal with sexual assault, we turned it into this like weaponization thing where all that matters is that something comes forward and is then used as like a gotcha, but like the actual like concern around victims and anything like that, like there was like nothing around that. And so I I guess like my, I, I would say, Darren, like, I think there is something to this worry that you have about, you know, are we going to be like, are, are we, we need to be, if people have complaints about other people's behavior, they need to be dealt with in good faith, like through an actual process that takes an, into account that is not like litigated in the media, essentially. Like it needs to be like a serious type of thing. And the way that things are playing out right now are lending themselves to be way more political, which ultimately is, is not useful in any shape or form. You know, the political aspect is an interesting one, Esmahan, because I asked Sonia Sharp and Andre Chabot specifically whether or not they thought it was politically or or I asked them straight up, is this politically motivated? Um, and of course, they're not going to say. But if you look at the folks who who have maybe raised the concerns, it it it, it seems it feels politically motivated. And that's, in my mind, the danger. I think that there should be respect in the workplace, 100%. And you're right that the, that the complaints 
need to be legitimate and they need to be dealt with. But if we're going to let every little disagreement, if somebody doesn't like what Dan McLean says, or somebody doesn't like what Jasmine Mian says, should we be filing an ethics complaint? If they trash the media, should I be filing an ethics complaint with the ethics advisor because my feelings are hurt? Well, no, people disagree. And that's part of the job. It, yes, Jeremy, it has to be done respectfully when you disagree. But, but I fear that this ethics advisor thing is going to be weaponized. And at some point down the road, this is all going to come up that Stephen Carter had multiple complaints uh, levied against them, or Giancarlo Carra had multiple complaints levied against him. And this is going to come out and it's going to be used against him. And I feel like it's, it's very much politics at play. Which is fine. I just uh, and I'm not saying I'm not saying Councillor Kara is like a bad individual. I think you know he identified that. Hey, maybe I should have instead of tweeting, actually talked to these human beings, and he owned up to that. Yeah, there's probably going to be some more complaints levied against him, but I think he identified that. Hey, we are humans at the end of the day. Like we've been, I've been sitting in front of my computer in this virtual Zoom world for like two years now and it's almost like we've forgotten how to like call somebody over the phone or like just take somebody aside if we have something that's been you know on our minds to just talk it over i mean he's at least identified those issues and owned up to that mistake i think like the one thing that i would have to say around this is that If the concern is truly about behavior, then politics has to be removed from it. And it has to go through these sorts of like independent, private processes that lend itself to actually like positive outcomes. And I think it's, it needs to like, that that partisanship aspect like needs to be removed. And I know that City Hall is like not partisan, but like if it's always going to be the case, for example, that progressively minded individuals are the ones who are being complained against or vice versa, then even if there is truth, and I'm not saying that there is to anything that's happened, I'm just talking in hypotheticals, then like what's going to happen is people are going to be like, well, I don't believe this person because it's always like the progressives that are being uh, targeted, or I don't believe this person because it's always like the conservatives that are being targeted. And I feel like that is like so corrosive and destructive. So I, I really don't know that any of this discourse that we've had in the last little bit has been like very helpful to our council or to like the way that we should like the way that we should be thinking and talking about these sorts of things. Sounds like a perfect segue into our next segment. Oh, goodness. excited for the day that COVID is no longer a segment. FYI, but we are chatting about COVID because the city recently followed in the steps of the province and removed the vaccine passport or restrictions exemption program. And then um, in a very tight vote also decided to kind of go with the province and if, uh, you know, remove mass mandates on March 1st, if that's what the province does. COVID, it's been a really, really heated uh, policy sort of area, Darren and, and Jeremy. It has. And I think, you know, I, I wonder, and we will probably never know. This really came down to to data in a lot of ways, 
let me explain what I mean by that. The Calgary Emergency Management Agency uh, and Chief Sue Henry said that they supported the recommendation of aligning with the province. Uh, Matt Zablowski from the city of Calgary said that they supported aligning with the province primarily because if they were to set repeal criteria, they are uncertain whether they would have the data from the province that would allow them to make that decision. So if they had the data, if they had the appropriate data, if they had all of the tools they needed, I actually think they may have been able to convince a certain number of councillors, enough councillors to continue with a mask mandate in, in Calgary. But when push came to shove and there was no data and we couldn't just put an arbitrary number on it, which they tried March 31st, when you couldn't put an arbitrary number to it, then I think everybody was just kind of like, well, what do we do? I guess we just leave it up to the province. And that's, that's ultimately where uh, city councillors landed on this. So what's interesting to me, and this is kind of going into the next part of our segment, is that, I mean, the whole like city versus province thing has been evident from the beginning of this pandemic. I, I believe, if I rem- remember incorrectly, that the city put in a state of emergency before the province did, that the city had a mask mandate before the province did at the start of the pandemic. And um, when Kenny came out and said that, you know, we were removing the vaccine passport, we're removing the um uh, mask mandate. Uh, I think people ask, or journalists, I should say, ask like, well, can cities, you know, still continue on with theirs? And he, he made some comments around like, well, you know, if they do that, we're going to look at what we can do to like ensure that that doesn't happen, which it's sort of like perpetuating this oppositional relationship between the province and the cities and wielding this kind of, I mean, obviously the province has quite a bit of authority, I should say, over cities. I I saw that Evan Spencer commented in in debate that he was really concerned by the comments that um, Kenny made. And it just feels like, again, like what should be a public health decision turned into this like very political, the province kind of taking this almost like bullying approach towards the city. You know, what's interesting is that this whole debate about you know jurisdiction you know this isn't kind of the first time where it's been dealt with i guess but on a much lesser extent in terms of the consequences and and the effects of it was uh, if i recall correctly when the city was when city council was thinking about trying to ban uh, shark fin right and it ended up really not going anywhere because it, it it was a federal jurisdictional responsibility at the end of the day so even if city council were to pass something it it really actually didn't have any jurisdiction to do that so whatever it would have passed really didn't have any legal enforcement or teeth to it so i don't think this is kind of like the first time where we've seen cities trying to do something because you know it probably is the right thing to do but they just they're just simply held back by the original laws of the land. The jurisdiction aspect is an interesting one because 
the city is able to make decisions based on the health and safety of citizens. Now, that's a really, really broad definition because health and safety really could mean anything. But what we're talking about is the specific health jurisdiction, like under the umbrella of the Ministry of Health and the powers that have been afforded to provinces by the federal government. And the cities don't have that, but yet they do have a responsibility for the health and safety of their population. I believe that that's where some of the councillors sort of stood on this was it's our responsibility to think bigger picture. And if in the absence of health measures that are put in place by the actual authority, we still do have the right to make decisions locally that we believe are in the best interest of the health and safety of our citizens. That's an important thing for cities to have, because when we look at how public health measures have been so politicized, I don't know, for me, I mean, every everyone knows my like bias. Like I think that uh, masks are important. I, I think that the vaccine passports were like a good thing. Um, and it, it's often felt like, you know, we've had to like pull teeth with the province to get the kind of like adequate public health measures that we need. And so for me, often the city has felt like the adults in the room. And it's, that's why I think it's disturbing for me to hear the premier talking about how you know, if the cities do X, Y, or Z, we're going to look at how we're going to undermine it, or we're going to look at how we can prevent them from doing that. Because that separation of powers, I think, is has really been important for us. And uh, the idea for me that the province would so infringe on that is is kind of disturbing. I, I think it's interesting the argument, like the cities or the mayors or the reefs or whomever your local jurisdiction, and say they have the right to do certain things with certain regulations, but remember the province gave them that ability. They can always take it away, which is all very interesting when we were, when we've been talking kind of about the, the Sean Chu controversy here and how the province said, Oh, we can't do anything. You can, I mean, with a, with a, a change in regulations or a new, uh, a new law, you can do as a province, whatever you want really for a city or to change the rules uh, uh, around how a councillor is removed or or elected or or appointed or replaced they they have the constitutional right to do that and i know maybe in this day and age we're not going to just you know create a law and and do whatever we want as a provincial government but in in it, if you read the rules yes they do have that ability I, I just want to bring in one thing because it, it sort of ties the two segments together. It was really interesting after the decision on masks was made uh, because upon questioning, Mayor Gondick immediately went to the collaboration aspect. I know that we talked about, about the appearance of sides and perhaps a political agenda behind the ethics complaints. And I think that the mayor spoke like at length about how, yes, we can all not agree, but when we come together and we work together and we listen. So she's really trying to build that narrative of collaboration upon like within members of council. 
that aspect of this whole battle, like it, it just feels like there's there's a little bit of like patching holes in the ship right now because we're trying to make sure that the message is collaboration and we can get things done together. Um, when clearly, with the seven eight vote against Dan McLean's, or, or I guess it was eight seven in in favor initially of the the amendment. There's clearly a, a divide in in the way this is viewed on council. Uh, well, let's move into our quick hits, which is when we give you some uh, tidbits to educate you about things that are happening about the city. Darren, I'll throw it to you. Sure. So street harassment, uh, there was an addition to the, the public harassment bylaw, w- w- which included uh, a definition for harassment and and espe- especially on the street. And co- it comes with a $500 fine that is now enshrined in local legislation. You know, this probably warrants more of, of our time on the podcast. Maybe we'll get into it in the future. But the city of Calgary approved looking or or engaging in discussions on an indigenous gathering place uh, at the confluence of the Bow and Elbow Rivers. It was a pretty big step forward, I think, that they are going to actually engage in, in securing a parcel of land for this. But just some of the conversation around around it was fascinating, particularly when Dr. Terry Poussette, in response to a question from Sonia Sharp, basically said, consultation has a legal meaning and consultation under under the, I I believe it's the Indian Act, uh, requires or it requires consultation when the rights, the treaty rights of the different nations are infringed upon. And she said very clearly, the creation of an indigenous gathering place inside an urban area does not infringe on my treaty rights. So therefore, I do not need to be consulted on this because part of the debate was around consultation. And she suggested rather that there should be voluntary engagement. Just such such poignancy in, in that comment because again, it just gets so political and the reasons why people stand in the way of certain things just seem very, very political. All right, this is a quick hit. So I'm going to move on. Another interesting one today, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, she announced $750 million in funding for, for transit operations with the connection to affordable housing. I believe that there's an announcement by the feds uh, late last year or early this year that they wanted transit funding to be tied to the creation of affordable housing. 750 million bucks. For those who don't know, the city of Calgary is projecting an $89 million deficit in Calgary transit. And that's even with an increase to 60% of the ridership pre-pandemic. So this money could go a long way towards filling in those gaps and that deficit with with Calgary Transit. There's a kicker here though, and it kind of ties into some of the things that we were talking about before, and that is provincial matching funds are needed in order for the cities to access this cash. So we'll see what happens with that. As always, thank you to uh, our audience for to listening to us. If you want to talk about municipal politics, there's lots of ways that you can do so. Make sure to join 
Darren on his Twitter spaces at 5 p.m. on Fridays. You can find them by going to at livewire underscore DK and follow us on Twitter. Darren's, like I said, at livewire underscore DK. Jeremy's at JZ from Calgary and I'm at YYC. Um, tweet us your hot takes and your thoughts about, you know, hot chocolate in Calgary. I want to know what your favorite one was for February. And we do want to thank once again, our sponsors, um, Calgary-based startup Eat for Later. Check them out at eatforlater.com, as well as Gateway Association Calgary and their new EDI employment hub, gateway2diversity.ca. Thank you so much and have a great day. Bye.